We're wrapping up the sermon series this morning, Undivided. Uh, and we've come a long way. So we started looking at the divisions between men and women. Um, we looked at divisions between the young and the old. We looked at divisions between single and married. And so this morning, um, we're going to be looking at the divisions between rich and poor, the haves, the have-nots, the have-mores, and the have-lesses. So this is a very tricky division to talk about. On the one hand, I doubt very strongly that I would have to convince any of you um, that there is division in the world between those who have more and those who have less, rich and poor, um, between the West and those living in undeveloped parts of the country, between the 1% and the rest of us, between the middle class, whatever that is, and those who are not middle class, right? I, I doubt that I would have to convince you that there is division there. I doubt that I would have to convince you that those divisions are very real and have real-life implications for the people who are on the have-less side of the equation. And I doubt that I would have to convince you that it's something that maybe we should care about. We see this division every single day. It is always in front of us. We experience it in the discomfort that we feel when we drive past someone panhandling at an on-ramp or an off-ramp. We feel it when we sit in front of our TV screens and we watch the fabulous lives of the rich and famous reflected back at us. We feel it when we compare ourselves to those we think are doing better, or those we think are at a place that we wish to be. We feel this. We see this. We know that this is real. We live it when we are struggling to make ends meet, when we're trying to figure out how we're going to buy food or pay bills in between this job and the next. We know this division. But on the other hand, ironically, for most of us, especially those of us who go to churches like this, happy little multiracial congregations, <laughs> for, for most of us, the time when we experience this division the least is, is on Sunday morning. The place where we see this division the least is here. So I study multiracial churches in my other life as a sociologist. So one of the things that we know about multiracial congregations is that class-wise, they tend to be very um, not diverse. <laughs> multiracial congregations tend to be full of, filled with people who are um, pretty much similarly situated in life, fairly educated, fairly the same. So ironically, when we come here Sunday in and Sunday out, when we interact with each other, those divisions in class are harder to see. We're all middle class here. What, what, what is middle class? So I'm middle class. There's a VP somewhere at some Fortune 500 company who is also middle class. There is a struggling mother who ha is trying to raise a number of children um, living paycheck to paycheck who would also describe herself as middle. We are all middle class right there. So how do we talk about this? How do we understand it? How do we see it? What does it look like in the church? When we talk about divisions between men and women, if we talk about racial division, if we talk about even divisions between marrieds and singles, those are easier for us to see. They're visible. There's signs that point to it, but what does it look like in the church? How do we identify it? How do we talk about it? And especially when we live in a culture where one of the biggest no-nos is to talk to people about their money. 
It's, we don't do that. We come and we sit and we live and we do what we're doing. And some of us come here Sunday in and Sunday out and are barely making it. And others of us come here Sunday in and Sunday out and are very comfortable. And how would we ever know it? We don't talk about those things. See, for the church, the division between rich and poor between the haves and the have-nots, the have-mores and the have-lesses, that is often something that we talk about as being out there. And the way we fix it is with out-there solutions. Let's have a drive, a clothing drive, a toy drive, a food drive, a whatever kind of drive you can think of. We need to fix it with charity that we will do for those out there where that division is. But what does it look like to deal with it here? To even try to see it here in the church. There's absolutely nothing wrong with helping and working towards fixing the division out there. <laughs> but one thing that we have absolutely learned with this sermon series, I hope, is that God is concerned about the divisions in here. And so that's what we want to talk about um, this morning. Would you know if there was someone sitting next to you, the same person who sits, because, you know, we all sit in about the same place all the time. Would you know if the person who sits next to you every Sunday was struggling? Would you know if the person who sits next to you every Sunday was stingy as the day was long? <laughs> Would you know it? How could you possibly know it? It's a tricky thing to talk about, so let me just give this disclaimer, and I probably should have given it at the beginning. But when I sat down to try to write this sermon, one of the hardest things was trying to figure out language, right? So um, we have a little preaching calendar, and you know, you write like a quick description of what the sermon is going to be about. And this one is listed as rich and poor, division between rich and poor. I am not very creative. So typically, my sermon titles are whatever is listed on that little spreadsheet, because I just, I can't with, I'm just, it's not a good thing for me. But I knew that if I called this division between the rich and the poor, no one in the congregation would think I was talking to them. Because nobody's rich and nobody's poor. We're, 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 again, we're all middle class. How do you talk about it? So if I say the haves and the have-nots, is that not offensive? How, who, what do we, how do we talk about class in the church? There's not even language for it. So, what we're going to do, what I'm going to do for the most of the rest of this sermon is kind of go in and out between all of it. So don't be, if I say rich and poor, you are in one of those two categories. <laughs> if I say haves and have nots, have mores and have lesses, we all fit in one of those categories. I will leave it between you and your God to figure out which category you fit into. So that's what we're going to say from the start. <laughs> if you have your Bibles, uh, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to turn to Acts chapter 4. Um, and we're going to read verses 32 through 35, and in a moment I'll have you stand up because we'll read those, two, those verses um, together. But before we get here, um, I want to just go ahead and put before you the thing I want you to hold in your mind as, as I am preaching is that the division between rich and poor is something that is real for us, and it's something that speaks to this congregation, not outside these walls, but within these walls. And so I want you to go ahead and sit and rest with that as we read this text and as we move through this sermon series. So if you are able, please stand as we read God's words together. So beginning with verse 32, it reads, 
all the believers This is the word of God. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. All the believers were one in heart and in mind. All the believers were one in heart and in mind. That is the, the, the portion of this text that I want you to hold on to. We're going to come back to that um, later on in this sermon. So this is the second time in the Gospel of Luke that, that we are hearing um, an account of this, this kind of community. The first time that we see this happens in Acts 2, and it happens after the day of Pentecost. And so uh, as the story goes, um, all of the disciples were gathered on the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes like tongues with fire. And it happened, just so happened that this was a time um, in, the, in the life of the Jewish community where folk from all over the Jewish diaspora had been gathered in this one place in Jerusalem. And so they come out, and they start speaking in tongues, and people hear them talking in their own language. And so they are uh, clearly, you know, interested in what is going on, what's happening. And so Peter preaches one of the first sermons that he preaches, and about 3,000 people are converted, what we're told. And the next thing that we hear about after we learn about the conversion um, of this, these people um, is, that, is that this community was one that was characterized by this kind of generosity. Um, in verses 42, starting there in chapter 2, it says, This community devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. So the fact that Luke is giving us this kind of a description of this early church twice, fairly early on in the account, lets us know that this is something that is important. It's something for us to pay attention to. So before we go any further, there's a couple things that I should dispel. Uh, There's two ways that this passage is is sort of received by people when they read it. The first is people sort of uh, dismiss it, because they're, well, in both they will dismiss it. But the first people dismiss it because they think to themselves, well, you know what, that to me sounds like communism. And if you are going to about to tell me that what I need to do is sell all of my possessions and that it's something wrong with living in this capitalistic economy, then no. So that's, that's, where, people, that's where people go. So let me just say this. I, the, anyone who knows me well knows that um, I probably am not that opposed to communism as I should be as an American. However, however, this is not a biblical justification for communism. That's not what's happening here. Um, People want to throw this text out because of that, but in fact, what's happening is, I think, more challenging and more radical than a biblical sort of justification for communism. That's not what this is about. 
See, the sharing of possessions that was happening in the early church, people selling their homes or selling their land and bringing it before the apostles, this wasn't something that was mandated by law, right? It wasn't a requirement to live in Christian community. There was no sign at the door that said, before you come in here, you need to get rid of all of that stuff, sell it, bring the money in here, because we live collectively. It wasn't, that wasn't what was happening. People did this voluntarily. From time to time, as folks saw need in the community, led by the Holy Spirit, led by their own conscience, their own desire, their own will, they would sell their possessions and live in this way. There was no law or governing structure that prohibited the the ownership of private property. And we know this to be true because when we read through Acts, we see that the church was meeting in people's homes. So somebody had a home, right? Uh, or else they would have had a hard time meeting there. The sharing of economic resources was not mandated. Far from communism, what the early church demonstrated was radical generosity. People who participated in this sort of redistribution of wealth, which is such an ugly phrase nowadays, but they did so because they wanted to do so. Period. They did so because they were compelled to do so, not by someone in the community, some leader, some apostle, by the Holy Spirit. This was voluntary. And we know that it's voluntary. You might remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We, we learn about them in chapter 5. And these are two people who owned some property, and they went out and they sold their property, and they decided that they didn't want to bring all of the proceeds before the apostles. So they only brought a portion of it. But they didn't want to bring a portion of it and say that's what they did. So they lied and they pretended like this was all the money that they had made. And Peter rebukes them and he's like, was that not, it was your land, right? Didn't you own the land? So why? Why come in here and tell me that this is all of the money that you made? What is the point of that? In other words, you don't have to do this, Ananias and Sapphira. You don't have to go and sell your stuff and give it to us. That's not a requirement. Now, as the story goes, they were actually struck dead. Um, which is <laughs> another sermon, but, <laughs> but this wasn't something that you had to do. See, the reason they did it is because they wanted perhaps to, you know, have some sort of a um, prestige or status in the community. And because everybody else was doing it, they thought, well, this is a way that I can look good too. But that wasn't the point. People weren't doing it to gain status. People weren't doing it because they had to. People were doing it participating in this radical generosity because they were compelled by the Holy Spirit, because they saw need in the community and they wanted to meet it in whatever way they could. This was not communism. The picture that this text paints for us is far more radical than that. The early church was supernaturally generous. And so the text what it should say to us is something that's so much more challenging than a person just standing up here before you and telling you you shouldn't have whatever it is that you have. Go sell it and do this with it. So much more challenging than that because this text challenges us to live radically generous lives, not because we have to, but because we have been compelled by the Holy Spirit. And so this text challenges us to live in such a way 
that we are submitted to the Holy Spirit and we can hear the Holy Spirit and not resist it. Because t- I'm going to be honest with you. If I heard the Holy Spirit tell me, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, I'm not sure I would trust at first hearing that that was the Holy Spirit. I might start like, uh-uh, that, I'm sure that wasn't God because I don't think that the Lord would. Right? What does it look like to live in such a way that if God were to lead you to do that, he would do it? without question, without hesitation. That's the kind of generosity that this text challenges us to. So this brings me to the second reason that people will dismiss this. Um, So what the early church did is so far beyond, like, our comprehension of how people live together that we just assume it doesn't apply. Like, that's something that was awesome for them at that time in their context, But certainly, that's not what we ought to do. Like, that, no. So what this text really must be about is radical generosity with any and everything except our finances. So I will be radically generous with my love of humanity. I will be radically generous with my time and my friendship. Like, anything but my, but like my money, like I'm not, I don't know that it's right. That's what people do with this text. That's the other thing that folk do. This must not be about economics at all. It is. So it's not symbolic when they say that all the believers shared everything in common. When they say that they sold, nope, it's, it's not symbolism. It's not metaphor. That's what they did. And It's not a given that it should be taken symbolically or metaphorically for us. There is a real challenge. There is a real call to us in this text. Amen? Amen. All right, that was enough amens that I feel like I can go on. All right. So, (laughs) all the believers were one in heart and in mind. So what's going on in this passage? Um, So I've said that this is a text about radical generosity, but what did that look like specifically? And what does that have to do with the division in the church between those who have and those who have less? So this text tells us that from time to time, those who had land would sell the land and bring the proceeds to the apostles. And the apostles were responsible for then dispersing those resources through the church as there was need. A key phrase here is from time to time. And this is important because it indicates that this is something that went on regularly, right? So it wasn't like people join the community, they do this one time, and then it never happens again. This was something that a practice that was ongoing in the life of the church from time to time. It happened on a frequent basis. The other thing that you have to keep in mind to understand this text is that um, there were, in fact, as we have said, people in the church who still own land and homes, and they didn't necessarily feel compelled to go out and sell those. So again, not communism. What was going on in this congregation is that from time to time, a person might notice that there is a need in this church. There's someone who is hurting. There is a lack somewhere in the community. And that person And I believe it was probably not easy. Maybe for some it was, maybe for others it wasn't. But in prayer and in discernment, began to consider, well, how might I meet that need? What can I do to fill that void? And so they might decide to then say, I'm going to, you know what? I have something extra. I can sell that and I can meet that need. And then we will all be taken care of. 
From time to time, this was happening. These were not perfect people. And so I imagine that there was absolutely struggle. And there may have been people at times who really wrestled with what that means to to be that generous. These were absolutely not perfect people. And we know this because just a few verses, chapters, stories down the road, we're going to find that they had some serious stuff going on where there were some widows, Grecian widows, who were saying, I'm not getting fed enough. Our widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So they struggled with some of the things that we struggle with too. And yet from time to time, some folk lived in this radically generous way. What does this look like for us? What might this mean for us? All the believers were one in heart and mind. The first thing that I want to say to you is that the thing that tore down the division in the church between the rich and the poor was not radical generosity. Radical generosity was an out of the thing that tore down the division in the church between the rich and the poor. All the believers were one in heart and mind. The thing that tore down the division in the church, the thing that led to radical generosity was oneness, was unity. These were not perfect people, but these were people who were living into the truth of the gospel, that in Christ we are one. That in Christ we have been united and you are not just someone I sit next to on Sunday. You are my sister. You are my brother. In Christ we are one. And this is important. See, it's hard to think about giving up something that is costly to you for a stranger, for an acquaintance, for someone you don't know. It's not so hard to think about giving up something that is costly to you for someone that you love, for your mother, for your brother, for your father, for your sister. It becomes easier when you see a need. If if there's someone in my family that is struggling, it's a little bit easier for me to give, for me to figure out what can I do, what do I have to do, what do I need to do to meet that need. Than it is if someone who I don't know that well is struggling. All the believers were one in heart and mind. The thing that tore down the division was connection to each other through the Holy Spirit. I asked the question in the beginning, how, how many of you would know if the person you sit next to you, who sits next to you Sunday in and Sunday out, was struggling with generosity or with brokenness? How many of you would know that? How many of us would know that. How many of us would share that? How many of us come to church all of the time and we say we're fine and we say we're great, but we are barely making ends meet? How many people would feel comfortable saying to someone when they say, how are you doing? Ooh, well, you know what? We're about to foreclose on our home. We are, you know, we we have made some um, poor financial decisions and we are in a bad situation right now. Please pray for me. Who, have you ever heard anyone say that in the church? I have never heard. I got saved at 16. I am so very far from 16. I have never heard anyone say that in the context of a church. How many people would feel comfortable saying that? Here's another question. How many of you, if you heard that, would feel like, you know what? I, I actually have, I have some 
resources. There's no reason for you to be struggling with a, a foreclosure. What, what's, what, what's going on? What do you owe? Because I, I could probably, I could maybe help you out in that way. Who, how, who would say that? Because on one hand, it sounds really great. And if we heard that, we feel all heart warmed inside. Like, oh my gosh, that was so wonderful. Who would actually do it? And not just because, it's not about necessarily about stinginess. Sometimes the, the, what we attach to money in the context of this culture makes people ashamed to be struggling and makes people ashamed to not be struggling. It's something you just don't talk about. Well, how would they receive it if I were to offer that? What would it look like if we were a community where all the believers were one in heart and mind? This is a picture of a church that actively resisted this division between those who had more and those who had less. This was a community that didn't see that division as something that was out there, as something that we can fix with charity. They saw it as something that is important to address among us. They said, if you have a need, it's a felt need of all of us, and so therefore we meet it together. This was a community that was living into the oneness that we have been promised through Christ Jesus. All the believers were one in heart and mind. This was a direct response to submission to the Holy Spirit. And so the call to us is what does it look like for us to be submitted in such a powerful and profound and all-encompassing way to the Holy Spirit? When there was a need that rose in this community, people saw it not just, again, as something outside of myself, but as a need that my brother or my sister has and one that I want to help. So the take-home is that oneness is the prerequisite for this radical generosity. And this is not necessarily like a very deep or profound thing to say. I think we, we feel like we know it, but do we? And then how do we live into the oneness? So here's the, the place where we're going to spend the rest of the time today. And this is this practical part of it, right? What does this look like? This is the part of the sermon where it gets a little bit more difficult. Because, again, these things sound so amazing. And I think we would all agree, I want to live in a community like that, right? I want to live in a community where there is no shame. I don't, my identity is so disconnected from whatever it is that I have that I have no shame in talking to you about it, whatever it is. I want to live in a community where I am not bound by what I have so much so that I can't live for the other, right? Because that's what we're called to do, right? If you have two tunics, give one away. That's how Christ envisioned this church. That's what we're supposed to do. But I want to live in that community, and I bet you do too. Now, how do you do it? Because that did because we don't live in that community. I've never seen that community. And probably we won't see it till Jesus returns. But we can take some steps. So, again, I, I will not. I think it would be irresponsible almost for me to try to give you one, two, threes, right? I can't say, so this is what it looks like. If you earn more than X, then you should give X, right? Because that's not even what it's about. That's that. Radical generosity is inspired by what? The Holy Spirit. So it's nothing that I will say to you. It has to come from conviction from the Holy Spirit. But there's some questions that we should wrestle with. It sounds great. But what does it mean for us to be willing to be vulnerable enough 
to share with each other where we actually are? What would that look like? Does it happen in community group? It almost will not happen just on a Sunday service. So what does it mean for us as a church to create ways where people come to know each other like that, where people come to care for each other like that, and where people are freed up from whatever shame that they have? Here's the other side of it. In order for you to see someone's need and be um, generous and, and, and free to share whatever it is you have, you have to open yourself up to trust that that won't be taken advantage of. Because that's the other caution in our culture, right? You can't just give, 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 because people will just take, take, take. What does it look like to trust each other so that I'm not worried that you are going to take advantage of my generosity, that that won't even be a thought in my head? What would that look like for vulnerability and for trust? How do we establish that in the church? What does it look like for us as we walk alongside one another and we hold each other accountable to living according to the way Christ has called us? So we we try to be pretty open and transparent with our finances in this congregation. We um, Zach, our treasurer, comes and gives updates and we see what is happening and we talk about it. And that's very intentional because we want to be a community that can talk about money. So what does it mean for us to talk about money outside of those updates? to challenge one another when it comes to giving and and tithing and offering and things like that? How do we develop language that goes beyond what the world says? Again, I couldn't even think of language that wouldn't be offensive, like rich, poor, middle class, not middle class. Like what? How do we talk about it? And while this absolutely has everything to do with money, radical generosity is not just about money. So how do we affirm each other in sharing all that we have? I made a joke about it earlier, but some of us are stingy with our time. Um, One of the things that struck me last week when we had our panel discussion with the singles and the marrieds, and one of a single person, I don't remember which person it was, but they mentioned this idea, this assumption that people without kids, people who aren't married, those will be the ones that do all the work of the church because they have time. Well, what would it look like for everyone to give their time generously and freely. What would that be like? How do we hold each other accountable? One thing that I do believe is important and one very practical and tangible thing, and it's not just a shameless pub, but I think community groups are an important place for a church that's trying to do the things that we say we are trying to do. You don't become one because you go to church every Sunday and you sit next to the same person. It does not happen. And we know it doesn't happen. There's some of us who've been in this church since it started on day one. There's some people who you see and you have seen every day for the last umpteen years, and you don't know much more about them today than you knew when church started umpteen years ago. We like them. We, we feel fondly for them. We care about them. We might even say we love them, but do we really know anything more about what's going on in their lives? It will not happen because you come every Sunday. If you came every single Sunday, you will not, we will not become one because we sit next to each other in a chair. So community groups are important. I think that um, those little emails that we get about coming to things like Pat's or any sort of service, these are moments where we can become one. This is the other thing that we can do, and I'll um, leave you with this. It means that we have to care enough to actually pray about these things. 
I think that um, we say our mission statement and we come and we participate in this church and we say that this is something we are committed to. We want to be one. We want to be unified. We want to be united. How many of us actually spend time in prayer on a regular basis asking God to help us as a church be one? Like how many of us actually spend time praying about the people who we see, those faces, asking God to create moments where we can get to know them better, to make us one, to unite us, to unify us as a church. I, I, I dare say that very few of us do that on a consistent basis. We have to care about it enough to pray about it, and then we have to care about it enough to receive conviction from the Holy Spirit so that when God answers and speaks, we will respond. So those are very simple things on the surface, very simple sounding things on the surface. But I want to challenge each and every one of us to not just walk away and say, it's so simple that I'm just not going to do it. (laughs) But in the weeks, in the months, in the years, in whatever span of time that will come before us to actually spend time doing it. If you're not in a community group, I I, um, I encourage you to consider it. If you're not praying about the people who you sit next to all the time, if you don't think about folk who you see on a Sunday unless you hear from them during the week, I encourage you to be prayerful about that. I encourage you this week and then next week and next month and next year to let this be something that you allow God to put a burden on your heart for. Amen? Amen. We want to be one. So I'm going to invite you to pray with me um, for a moment. And, and the prayer that I'm going to pray is, one, for God to give us eyes to see two things. First, for God to give us eyes to actually see the places where this is a division here. Not out there, but here. And then, two, for God to give us eyes to see the ways that we have been blessed with each other. God, I thank you that you have provided for new community in an amazing and powerful way. You have given us an abundance of resources. There is no lack in this church. Every need that is here has been met. And we believe, God, that you have met it through the gift of each other. Lord, help us to be people who have eyes to see. Help us to be people who have eyes that are willing to see. Let us not be content to walk away from brokenness and not even know that the thing is broken. God, we ask that you would help us to live powerfully into the truth that we have been made one. You have already torn down the division. So God, help us to see it and to live into it in a bold way. God, I pray that we would be people who are vulnerable with one another, that we, would be, that we would have no shame in sharing where we are. I pray that we would be people who are trusting of one another, that we would never fear being taken advantage of. I pray, God, that we would be a congregation whose security is rooted firmly in you, on your firm foundation, that we would be rooted firmly in the truth that we have been made one in heart and in mind. Holy Spirit, please convict us. Help us to see it. Help us 
Help us to respond to the ways that you are already speaking and already moving. God, we pray that it would not be burdensome, Lord Jesus, but that we would do it with joy. I ask that we would be family to one another, family in a healthy, God-centered way. Family that does not hurt one another, family that does not try to tear down, family that is not abusive, family that does not take advantage. Help us to be godly family to one another. And let this be a place where every need is met. What a powerful witness to the world to have a community that looks like this community functioning in such a way where there is no need. Because, Lord, we know and confess that there is no lack. You have given us all that we need. So we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We thank you for that. God, I thank you that you walk with us. I thank you that you are with us. I thank you that you are in us, that you are among us, that you are absolutely at all times unifying us and bringing us closer and closer and closer to that perfect, perfect perfection, that perfect unity, that perfect oneness. I ask for a taste of it on this side, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. God, we love you. And we declare now that you are all powerful. We declare now that you are absolutely able, that there is nothing that can hinder your will. We thank you for it, God. We thank you that you are moving. We thank you that you have moved. And we ask that you would help us to constantly be submitting and resubmitting ourselves to the things you have called us to, ultimately to your son, Jesus Christ, and also to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.